you'll turn with me to the end of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 18 to 20, and the next week we'll look at verse 21, 18 to 20. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Father, as we come to Your Word this morning, we ask that You would make it beautiful and precious to us that it would deeply touch our hearts and our souls and our minds, that it would strengthen us for things glorious and good and for standing firm in the midst of this world with joy and with hope. We pray these things for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. Well, in the early 90s, and sorry for some of those of you who maybe are too young for this, there was a skit on Saturday Night Live. It was called Daily Affirmations with Stuart Smalley. And at the beginning of it, uh, there was a montage of pictures floating across the screen. And as these pictures floated across, you could hear Stuart's voice say things like this, I deserve good things. I am entitled to my share of happiness. I refuse to beat myself up. I am an attractive person. I am fun to be with. And then after that montage, you see Stuart looking himself in a mirror, and he's talking about the, the program for the day, and then comes his famous tagline, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Now, obviously that skit is a bit of a parody, but it's actually not too far from reality. Just Google, not right now, but feel free at some point in time, Google daily affirmations or the need for daily affirmation, and you will have results that will go on ad infinitum. You will see 25 daily affirmations or 140 things to say daily or 18 excellent things to say daily for yourself. I would say that this ubiquitousness of, of, uh, of, of those results and the whole self-help industry today speaks to what that skit parodied, and that is the need for affirmation, for hearing things that are true. The trouble is, though, that too often what is presented in this realm is not actually all that helpful. Saying, I'm smart enough and I deserve good things isn't what we really need to hear or know because, for one thing, they aren't necessarily true. So it would be better to hear actual truth that makes an actual difference in our lives. John does that. If if you want affirmation, turn to Scripture. Turn to biblical affirmations. One of John's main purposes in writing his letter was to give assurance to those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that they have eternal life, that they can rest in that. And, And here at the end of his letter, he gives us affirmations. He reminds his readers of truth that is actually helpful. We'll see three affirmations here in these three verses. First is the preservation of the saints, the prevalence of evil, and then the provision of understanding. 
Now, all of these points, uh, they, they direct our hearts to realities that affect how we live, how we respond to situations in, in life on a day-to-day basis. And I think being reminded of these truths on that daily basis would do us much good as they would direct our hearts and our minds towards what is actually true and into the greatness of our God. Now, as we move into this, each of these affirmations begins in the same manner. We know. We know. Now, the phrase, I know, I, I know, we, we use that flippantly all the time. Oh, yeah, I know, when we have no clue what we're talking about. Okay, that can happen all the time. Now, um, but John is telling us here, though, that that this is something that we must consider, that we actually need to know as well. John did not write this. He did not write, um, we suspect that everyone who has been born of God, or we have a feeling, or we hope as in some kind of earthly and vain hope, or we wish. No, he, he writes, we know. We know. There is security involved in this, secure, uh, um, uh, surety and, and true and steady hope. This is not doggone it people like me that's subjective and fluctuates. This is objective truth that a believer in Jesus Christ can rest upon fully. We know. We know. So what is the truth that John gives? Again, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So he writes about everyone who has been born of God. He's specific in this. This is for all those who have been given new life by God, John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of, the, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You can also look at John 3.16 or John 10 or Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, this, this idea that we are born of God, that God is the one who is at work. And so John here is giving this assurance to those who love God, who love the brethren, and who obey the commandments of God, because as he's done throughout this letter, he says, that's what a child of God does. That is an evidence, that is a reassurance for a child of God. And so this is for those who are converted, who have true faith, And I love the shorter catechism definition of faith. I think it's really helpful where it says, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel. We receive, we hear that message, and we rest upon him alone. Not him plus anything, but him alone. So then, what is true of those who are born of God? Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, we need to remember the context here. When we break this up into shorter sections, shorter pericopes kind of things, we need to remember the context specifically of what was talked about last week. John's just coming out of calling for prayer for the brother who commits sin, not leading to death, but not necessarily calling for it for, the, the one, for anyone who commits sin that does lead to death. And so I think primarily John is referring back to that sin that leads to death. The believer does not commit that sin. He does not turn away from God and decide that there is no need for the work of Christ in his or her life. 
That sin is lawlessness. It is, as one said, a rejection of God's authority to define sin and consequently a rejection of God's grace. The believer will not do that, will not turn from that. And so let let me remind you of what Calvin wrote. I quoted this last week that does not keep on sinning refers back not to a partial fall or a transgression of a single commandment, but apostasy by which men wholly alienate themselves from God. For the apostle afterwards adds that the children of God do not sin. That is, they do not forsake God and wholly surrender themselves to Satan to be his slaves. So John is not saying here that the believer will never sin. That would contradict what he's already written. And that's, that's why quite often it, it talks about this keeps on sinning. That, um, John is saying um, not that the believer won't commit sin, but that he won't walk away from God and his goodness and grace ultimately. We may deny it at some points in time by sinning, but we won't ultimately turn away from this. And, and this, is, this is perseverance or the preservation of the saints. Our confession talks beautifully about this. In chapter 17, we read this, They whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Folks, that's tremendous comfort to know that to know that God is at work, but, but who is it that protects the saints? What, is, what does John tell us here? The text tells us that we are kept and protected, but who is that second, second reference to he who was born of God protects him? Who's that referring to? This is not a normal way of referring to Jesus, but I think actually in context, that's the best answer. Now, there is an aspect, though, where a believer, one born of God, is responsible to keep himself. Okay, there's a balance of the sovereignty of God and our responsibility. And Calvin commented that this was a way of speaking of the believer keeping or protecting himself, keeping himself within the fear of God in such a way that he would not suffer himself to be so led away as to lose all sense of religion and to surrender himself wholly to the devil and the flesh. And I think that actually fits well, that idea fits with what we read in Jude, um, verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in, the, in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So yes, we are responsible to keep ourselves in the love of God. And, and Calvin would affirm that, but he would also very much affirm that it is, it is due to the mercy and grace of God, his spirit at work in our lives that keeps us there. Now for John, I would be willing to bet that he's thinking of these words by Jesus from John 10, where Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. No one is able to snatch us out of the hand of Christ. No one. We will never perish. Those who are in Christ do not perish. Our preservation is by the grace of God. The sovereign God has called a people to himself. We are protected by God himself and are continuing in that 
In that grace of, uh, that, that saving grace in many ways flows, the confession says, from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them and the nature of the covenant of grace from all which arise also the certainty and infallibility thereof, that the Godhead is working together in us to preserve and protect us. That's a stunning thought, that God is at work to protect us and to keep us, His children we are secure as believers. Now, back in John to this phrase, the touching of the evil one, that does not mean that we are not harried by the enemy, that we are not harassed, that we are not challenged. One says for, for I think this is Calvin, for when he says that he is not touched by that wicked one, reference is made to a deadly wound, for the children of God do not remain untouched by the assaults of Satan, for, but they ward off his strokes by the shield of faith so that they do not penetrate into the heart. Hence, spiritual life is never extinguished in them. This is not to sin. Though the faithful indeed fall through the uh, infirmity of the flesh, yet they groan under the burden of sin, loathe themselves, and cease not to fear God. Satan cannot touch us ultimately. It's not that we, 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 we don't have um, difficulties and temptations to sin. But, but this idea is absolute comfort. This should, you know, the, the phrase kind of steal your vein, put steel in your veins in a sense in, in this world that is at times very, very difficult to navigate. Believers are kept and protected and preserved. They will persevere. Yet even though we will persevere, the third and final paragraph of the chapter, the Confession on Perseverance, brings, I think, reality even more to the fore. It says, nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. None of us is saying that, that we won't sin, but this is saying we could at times fall into some grievous sin. But those protected by God, those who are preserved, those who are in Christ, they'll be disciplined. They'll loathe there will be judgments, but they will ultimately come back to the Lord. And that is also comfort. But that, that, that's, I think, the need that turns us to the next affirmation. So we have this first affirmation. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. And then we move into, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Again, the terminology of we know is so important. It continually reassures the readers, and here in particular, of their status as a child of God. We know that we are from God. If you flip back a page probably in your Bible to 1 John 3, the first few verses, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it not, did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. 
what kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We're no longer children of wrath, but rather children of God. He has worked in us. There is no other explanation for our being interested in Christ at all than, than that, uh, and the things of God that God worked in us. God has called his children. They are his. We are no longer from this world. If you look back at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, this reassurance in this verse, I think, is so necessary when you see, so we know that we are from God, and then comes, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In the Gospel of John, we see this asserted three times. In 1231, it says, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Same basic ideas put forth in 1430 and 1611. Jesus acknowledged that Satan, Satan has some dominion in this world. And during Jesus' temptation, Satan tempted him with the world, with the things of the world. Luke 4, and the devil took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. If then you will, you will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So the world is in Satan's hands. God, though, is still the creator, the ultimate ruler, and Jesus has come and will come to, to fully drive out the evil one. But in the midst of this world that is in, in so many ways, under the rule and dominion of Satan, we know that we are from God. We know that we are from God. We, we are different, and I think that's a huge help in how we live in and approach the world. One thing is, folks, we should not be so surprised by all the evil in the world. We should not be surprised when sinners sin. Like, we shouldn't. Like, you should. Are you surprised when a dog barks? No, because that's what they do. Okay, we shouldn't be surprised when sinners sin. You know, why is there such a prevalence of evil in the world? Because the world, this whole system of rebellion against God, it lies in the power of the evil one. And I think this affirmation of we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one is really important for us. And, and I appreciated so much how Calvin uh, put this. He said, this is an admonition very necessary for all the godly. For wherever they turn their eyes, Satan has his allurements prepared. Wherever. Flip on a computer. And what's the ad? It's an allurement anything. They're, they're everywhere. And it says that there these allurements prepared by which he seeks to draw them away from God. It would then be difficult for them to hold on in their course were they not so to value their calling as to disregard all the hindrances of the world. 
Then, in order to be well prepared for the contest, these two things must be borne in mind, that the world is wicked and that our calling is from God. The world is wicked and our calling is from God. We are from God. Let us hold to that. Hold on to our course. So where is our hope? Where is our calling? Where is our worth? Where is our identity? It is in God, not in the things of this world. That which is from God is worth infinitely more than what this world has to offer. It may seem alluring. The tugs, the pulls, the pushes, the the temptations. One thing we have to remember is that they are seeking to rip us away from our vital union with Christ, from of what is of supreme worth. That's what they're seeking to do, is to tear us away from, from our calling. When Christ was tempted, his response was that it is God alone that we worship, that he worships. He valued that relationship far above whatever could be offered to him. Folks, we are from God, and it is in God that we rest, and it is in God that we find our worth in whom we know. uh, It's in him that we know who we are. It's in him that we have life. And so that's where we rest. We know that we are from God, even though the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so that is our calling. So let's hold fast to that calling. And I think that thought then leads to this final affirmation. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Folks, there are so many false gods so many that seek to pull us away, that, that honestly promise way, way more than they could ever deliver. They're bright and shiny, and in a day or two, they're rusty and worthless. They seek to pull us away. But in Christ, we know. We know And he has given us this wonderful gift of knowing, of understanding, of discernment, of what is good and right and beautiful and true. We know that the Son of God has come. He has come in the flesh. He has come in order to give his people life, to take the penalty that our sin so rightly deserves. And not only do we know this truth, but we know him who is true. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We know him. That's that's the joy of the believer, folks, knowing God. And as I was writing this out, as soon as I wrote knowing God, my my mind right away went to the classic work by J.I. Packer, Knowing God. If you haven't read it, I highly encourage you to read it. And at the In the very first chapter, he quotes Charles Spurgeon on this idea of knowing God and and what it does. And Spurgeon says this, I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. Getting to know God, 
digging into the character and, and grace and mercy and attributes of God, that is a delight. It's a comfort, a consolation, a strengthening of our souls. I remember John Piper was telling, he, he had a whole sermon series through just um, the, the greatness of God, the glory of God. And um, some people started saying to him, like, don't you think you need to do a little bit more like practical stuff? Shouldn't you do something like, like how to have a good marriage or something like that? And he actually said, well, what just happened is some people who were going through one of the worst times in their life, like one of the biggest trials they'd ever been through, said the only thing that got me through was the vision of God every single week that I got from this pulpit. That was what drove me, is that God is so good and so amazing, and so, so he's completely and utterly sovereign. He's the creator of all, and yet he has an interest in his children. He loves them and cares for them. Folks, that is extremely practical, to know that God is there, to seek his blessing, to seek his face. It is a delight, a comfort, a consolation, a strengthening of our souls. What on earth, truly, what on earth truly could be more alluring than knowing the sovereign and gracious God? God who is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. What could be better than that? Than knowing that God. Than having an intimate, personal relationship with that God. A fleeting pursuit of pleasure, money, success, more so than knowing the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who holds the universe together by the very word of his power, who created us all, who sent his only son to to die for us, the one who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What could be better? And I know it's one thing to say that, it's another thing to get it right here. To get it to the heart. And I think part of what this says too is, you know, He's given us understanding so that we may know Him, Him who is true, and we are in Him. Not only do we know Him, but we are in Him. We are vitally connected. We are in union with Christ. I don't have time to talk much about union, but as believers, we are in Him. We are connected in such a way that all that Christ did was for us. All He suffered comes to us by faith in Him through the gospel. As we turn from ourselves and the idols and false gods of this world and turn to Christ, by faith we are united to Him and all the benefits which He brings are, are, are set upon us, are given to us. It's not just His work that we look to. But we look to Him who is united to us, in whom we live. And in Him, we are given understanding of the ways of God. Folks, that's a blessed gift. A blessed gift. When we have Christ, we have the true God. It is only in Christ, only in Christ, that life is to be sought. That we find God. And in Him... We know and partake of eternal life as it is offered in Christ. Now we're going to get to the final verse. Little children, keep yourself from idols next week. Final exhortation, the close of this letter. But today, know these things as a believer. 
Hear them. Take them to heart. Rest in them. Be affirmed in them. You want to repeat something daily to yourself? Read these three verses. Believers are born of God and kept by God. Believers are from God, and therefore there is hope in the midst of a world system dominated by evil. And we know that we know God in Christ. We have been given life. Folks, there is no greater calling than this. Taking this to heart, resting in this, resting in these truths and these biblical affirmations will strengthen us daily against the assaults of this world. Folks, this, knowing Christ, this is real life. This is practical life. This is life eternal. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is so good and so so utterly beneficial and practical and yet glorious and beyond. It's just amazing. But Your Word is just a is there to point us to You, to point us to Christ and the final revelation. And so, Father, would You draw our hearts to You? Would You strengthen us with these things that are true? Give us hope. Give us life. Give us peace as we rest and delight in what is true and in Him who is true. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.